Well, good afternoon. We're back in the book of John, and we're back with John the Baptist. So we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 42 of chapter 1 of the book of John. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is chapter chapter 1, verse 35. On the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word. You may be seated. So you'll notice in this section of Scripture, again, it begins with on the next day. Now, there are actually three on the next day time markers that divide four consecutive days here in this section of of chapter one of the Gospel of John. So tonight we're going to look at day three of this narrative. Last, Last week we looked at day two. And just to recap, day one, you guys remember, John the Baptist, his witness was to the priests and Levites that were sent out from the Pharisees. And the message was, the Messiah is here. And then day two, John the Baptist's witness was to that gathered crowd. And the message was, behold the Lamb, or look to the Messiah. Now we're on day three. John the Baptist's witness is to John and Andrew. And the message is, Follow him. So last Sunday, we looked at the baptizer as both prophet and preacher with the explosive announcement to the nation and to the world that the sin bearer had arrived as their lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And that that very sin bearer would not only take away their sins, but he would also regenerate those same people to new life through baptism of the Holy Spirit. He then wrapped it up with the strongest human witness in Scripture of the deity of Christ to finish out day two. This is verse 34 where he says, I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So now on day three, you wonder what comes next for the Gospel writer John. Since it feels like we've hit such a crescendo in regards to the amazing witness of John the Baptist. Starting in verse 35, we see the spies are gone. They've gone back to Jerusalem. The crowds are gone. And John the Baptist, he's left with just Andrew and Peter, or Andrew and John. And it reads, on the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. Again, the repetition of the declaration Behold the Lamb of God as the one who has come, as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. 
And this is, again, directed to, and, to both Andrew and John to, to say, look, behold the one you are to follow. Their ears had heard enough, but now their eyes see. Seemingly with the baptizer's full blessing, they then leave him to follow Christ. Now this moment is significant because it marks the beginning of the private ministry of Jesus Christ. The beach has, is, is established right here in Bethany beyond the Jordan, likely on, those bank, on that banks of that, the same body of water that the baptizer was baptizing in, that the Messiah would start to gather his disciples. And these disciples would follow him for the next three years. But let me add a few more observations from this handoff from John to Jesus. Observations that can only enhance why Jesus Christ would call John the Baptist the greatest man born of woman. Now, I call it a handoff loosely because, I mean, recognizing from go going from being a follower of John the Baptist to being a follower of Jesus is an epic promotion. Going from the better to the best, to follow the Son of God. Disciples are being transferred from one rabbi to another rabbi, for both are called rabbi in Scripture. We're all familiar with Christ being called rabbi, but so is John the Baptist. In John 3, John's Gospel records, when some of his other followers addressed him as rabbi, it reads, Rabbi, who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness? Now the first observation concerning what we can learn from John the Baptist was he was a shepherd of men. The baptizer was a spiritual leader that men, men followed, but only until he could lead them to the Messiah because only a good shepherd will lead his sheep to what is the very best for them. And the very, very best for Andrew and John was to follow Christ. John the Baptist wasn't interested in his own movement because he knew it was only a temporary movement to prepare for something much bigger. He was called to prepare the way for the Messiah. He wanted no part in leading a ministry where he was the way, but rather to lead men to Christ who was and is the way. Again, this speaks of the, his obedience, speaks of his humility, not wanting to make a name for himself, but rather make a name for Christ. What a lesson for us that are in the ministry. That if we're to be good servants, if we're to be good servants of Christ, we have to one, re one day realize that it's not about us. That maybe I'm in the position I'm in because I'm a lesser counterpart as John the Baptist was to others in the ministry with greater gifts. That God wants me to support and to add to and to enhance. Not as a goal to magnify the other person in the ministry, but rather recognizing that we are all members of the same body just as we heard this morning in 1 Corinthians 12. And we all have different functions, some more public than others, but all are just as vital. And we are all vital because all the parks work together as a body to the ultimate goal of glorifying Christ. The Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, had so many men and women around him that were using their gifts to support him. And add to his ministry, add to his effectiveness, to minister to his physical, to minister to his spiritual needs, while he planted churches, while he shepherded churches, while he was out teaching, while he's out preaching. And by the way, while he was out writing almost half of the New Testament record. And his letters, they end so tenderly with greetings and calls of gratitude. 
for so many of these fellow workers who labored shoulder to shoulder with them. So think about that as you think about every member ministry. You know, one of the dearest saints here at Lakewood remarked to me a year or two ago, and she said, I'm just the donut lady. And at first glance, preparing the refreshments for Sunday morning may not seem that important, but it is. It is such a blessing that enhances our fellowship time because that fellowship time is the glue that holds this church together at the edges. For those people that don't normally interact during the week, coffee and donuts, oddly enough, is such a blessing to those interactions. So however you serve, it's never minor. The second observation we notice is John the Baptist's obedience to his calling from the Lord to continue to be the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Did you notice he does not leave? He doesn't leave the rugged wilderness to follow Christ, but he stays in the wilderness. As we see later in John's gospel, he's baptizing, he's proclaiming the Messiah. And think about it. John the Baptist isn't some neutral observer. He longed to see the Messiah just like every Jewish man did all of his life. And he longed to be with him just as all of us here today strongly desire to be with Christ. Yet John the Baptist, he stays out in the boondocks without the comforts of life. The baptizer knew his place. And that was to stay there as a voice because that is exactly where the Messiah wanted him to be. Not with him, but out doing what he was called to do. I mean, if building a ministry, if I was building a ministry, wouldn't the greatest man born a woman be a pretty good member to start your team? Yet it wasn't even a consideration. We all have our calling and we all have our place where God wants us to serve. And it may not be glamorous. It may be that you're literally out in the wilderness. It may be that you're a missionary out there someday. But what an example we have here in John the Baptist to to be obedient, to be humble, knowing you are exactly where God called you to be. The third observation is Jesus Christ, a sin bearer. That was the ultimate goal always for John the Baptist. His goal was to be obedient and in his obedience, honor and glorify Jesus Christ. To magnify him and his coming, to make straight the path for Yahweh, just as Isaiah 40 says. Isaiah 40 reads, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You know, all the other prophets, they called men and women of the nation of Israel to, call, to, uh, to follow Yahweh. But John the Baptist is the first to call men and women of the nation of Israel as well as the world to follow a man in the flesh, one of their own who lived among them, who didn't have a halo. He didn't have special features that indicated his deity. Just as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a tender, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Yet this tender shoot who grew up was the God man. He was fully God and fully man. And this was always John's focus to get the people of Israel to follow him. Why? Because only Christ could take away their sins and make them right with God. John the Baptist was a good man, but even the best of men are men at best. 
Thus, the baptizer's declaration of the one who can remove your sin, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The baptizing with water wasn't the end goal, but rather magnifying Jesus Christ, that was always the end goal. He was passionate about one thing, Jesus Christ. No one could question John's obedience, his devotion, and his love of him. Even standing and hearing his voice, the voice of his Savior delighted his soul. Just as it reads in John 3, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. Increasing the glory of Christ must always be our end as well. Isn't that not the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For only in Him is found the wellspring of all our hope and all our joy. But how do we best glorify Him? By learning from the greatest man born of woman, who was great in the eyes of of Yahweh because of His humility and because of His devotion to Christ. And we do this by lowering our own estimation of ourselves and raising our estimation of Him. The Puritan Simon Ash put it this way. He said, The way for a Christian to be content is not by raising his estate higher, but by bringing his spirit lower. Not by making his barns wider, but his barns narrower. Now that may sound simple to do in theory, but it can be one of the toughest battles in our lives. Because pride is the most insidious of all sins. Because it is from our pride that all other sins are birthed. But notice the baptizer's antidote to our pride and notice the correct order. First, Christ must increase. Second, we must decrease. The first determines the second. The only way we decrease is when Christ is increased. In our affections, in our focus, in our worship, and then and only then can the gospel go out in power because the gospel moves through the meek. Our fourth observation, what we can learn from John the Baptist, is the good fruit that results from these three traits we just discussed. His shepherding of men, his obedience to his calling, and his exaltation of Christ. They all lead to what happens next in verse 37. And it reads, the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. John and Andrew heard and followed. Why? Because they heard John's verbal witness For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, which means the message about Christ. Not through experience, not through phony signs and wonders, but through hearing the message about Christ. This is a reminder that the good news of Jesus Christ has to be spoken, proclaimed through words. That is the pattern of the New Testament from John the Baptist here at Bethany beyond the Jordan, to Peter on the day of Pentecost, to Paul reaching the Gentile nations, to even here at Lakewood Bible Chapel 2,000 years later at 4.33 on a Sunday afternoon. And not only is the verbal preaching of the gospel unique to the New Testament, but it is a unique construct emblematic of no other religion but Christianity. Next, we turn to verse 38 and 39. And it reads, When Jesus turned and noticed them following, He said to them, What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Here with the introduction of Jesus Christ himself, interacting for the first time in the Gospel of John, we move from observations about the baptizer to observations about Jesus Christ as he gathers in his followers. The first observation we, we consider in this handoff from John and Andrew, of John and Andrew, from John the Baptist to Jesus, we have to notice the shockingly obscure beginnings of this ministry and movement that would literally and spiritually change the world. John and Andrew had just left the only person in this narrative that had notoriety, any credibility. John the Baptist, although quirky and isolated out in the wilderness, he was at least well-known. He was at least well-respected. He was a prophet in the land. John and Andrew, as humble fishermen, were nobodies to the wider world that leave to follow a so-called nobody, Jesus Christ. Because really, in the absence of the powerful witness of the baptizer, Jesus Christ would not have been revealed to anyone. Not even his own family knew who he really was. Jesus Christ of Nazareth couldn't have been any more, secure, any more obscure or have any more humble in origin as seen by the world. Even his followers recognize this. Nathaniel asks later, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is a town known more for its drunks than for its prophets. And in a time of kings and tyrants and power and palaces, this and so it begins moment couldn't be more unremarkable to the world. The second observation we, when we read the verse and when Jesus turned and noticed them following, we must recognize that John and Andrew were moved first by his spiritual following, a seeking that leads to a physical following, meaning God the Father was drawing and seeking John and Andrew to Jesus Christ. As Jesus would later state in the Gospel of John when he was in Capernaum in John 6, and he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This would be the case with all those who are miraculously drawn to the Son by the Father. This effectual calling has been the experience of all of us here today, just as it has been for the last 2,000 years for all those who bow a knee to Jesus Christ. And the order is the same for all. First, the Father draws us, seeking us. Then we seek following Him. The third observation comes when we read the two questions in verse 38 and when jesus turned and noticed them following he said to them what do you seek and they they said to him rabbi where are you staying the question from the messiah may seem unremarkable he asked what do you seek but as the first words coming from the lips of the savior of the world this may be the most profound question in all of the Gospel of John to the unbelieving world, considering the near and far implications of this question, I find it so interesting. The first words of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John are, what do you seek? And the last words he speaks in the Gospel of John, which are addressed to the Gospel writer John in, in chapter 21, are, you follow me. What do you seek? You follow me. Those are the two bookends. So what, what about you, brothers and sisters? What are you seeking in this world? Do you seek first to follow Him? 
Or there, is there another agenda, another dream, another goal that's taking first place? Has our Savior been supplanted in your heart? And maybe you're actually seeking Christ as a means to another end, like a fleshly end of good health or prosperity. Well, Jesus rebuked such false seekers in John 6, saying, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So I urge you to seek him first and his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, the really important things he knows you need, not what you want. All these things will be added to you. A third observation in examining the true meaning is, is examining the true meaning of John and Andrew's question in verse 38. Rabbi, where are you staying? It seems like such an odd request. I mean, number one, I, I wouldn't recommend answering a question with a question with the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. But at first, it seems like they're asking for his address. But I think what is clear is John and Andrew, they long to be with him. They desired fellowship with Christ. And even further, as the word staying, being abiding, is used in, in this section, would indicate they sought communion with Christ. Communion that would reveal greater knowledge of the Messiah. Even the reply from Jesus when he says, come and you will see, it lends itself to this. Again, when we consider the near and far implications, even in this brief answer, come is a clarion call to John and Andrew that would expand to the clarion call of the gospel, which is come, all who are weary and heavy laden. To John and Andrew, it's come and you will see when I, when I receive you to myself as your new rabbi, as your new teacher, as your Messiah. Only through Christ would they finally gain the spiritual sight that they always sought. And verse 39 adds to the narrative. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. This being the 10th hour would be about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. For John and Andrew to have an audience with the Lord Jesus would have been mind-blowing, to say the least. Surely Christ would have expounded to them how he was the one that all the law and the prophets pointed forward to. Just as Jesus Christ would later sit around a table with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and explain the same thing. The, the, the thrilling discipleship of these two fishermen had only just begun adding fuel to their enthusiasm to share the discovery of their Messiah. That leads to verses 40 through 42, which read, One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of John, shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The first observation of these verses is that John and Andrew proclaim the answer from the prior day. What was the question from the prior day? From the Messiah? What do you seek? The answer from Andrew? We have found the Messiah. So now John and Andrew are eager to share the greatest treasure anyone could find. Here with Andrew going to family with the good news to his brother Simon Peter in verse 40 through 41. One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah. It shows us how the kingdom advances. And the kingdom advances by bring one bringing another to Christ. The light must not be hidden under a basket. 
It must not be quenched. The light must spread in all directions. Now here, Andrew sort of reaches his crescendo as the one who dragged his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. From now on, Simon Peter would catch, cast such a large shadow while Andrew sort of, sort of fades into the background. The second observation is, even though the disciples' numbers were slowly expanding, we still have here with Simon Peter another obscure fisherman. To add to the two other obscure fishermen and to a for now obscure Messiah who's not gone public yet with his ministry. Clearly the Messiah does not have to pick the best and brightest from every town and village in Galilee. He instead starts with some blue collar, rough around the edges fishermen that know each other, a couple brothers and John, all from very small towns. This group of three were the most common of people, the most unexpected sources to carry such divine truth. And it's true, Andrew, Peter, and John, they never went to seminary or rabbinical school. They didn't spend their life sitting at the feet, being trained by some rabbinical, grand rabbinical teacher like Paul did. They had no authority from Jerusalem to do anything. Yet it is men with men like these that Jesus was building a small army, a small army of unauthorized, unqualified disciples to carry the message of the gospel to the nation of Israel and to the world. It turns out the baptizer, the forerunner, he was just the beginning. He was just a a shot across the bow to the already panicked Jewish authorities in Jerusalem of what was soon coming when Christ does go public with his ministry. And he does go public with his newly formed group of disciples. Now let's look at the last disciple here, Simon Peter, verse 42. The last disciple, Simon Peter, he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The Messiah's first words to Peter must have shocked him a bit. Identifying Simon Peter by his birth name as son of his father, John or Jonas. So it'd be son of John or son of Jonas. You could say Simon Johnson. Can we call you Noel, son of Jonas? (laughs) So... Literally, he calls him that. And surely, Peter, not knowing the omniscience of Christ, who knew the hearts of all men, he surely believed, well, my brother Andrew must have given him this information. But then Jesus does something very unexpected. He gives Peter a new name. You shall be called Cephas. It's not uncommon to change someone's name based on something from the past or even a family member from the past. However, Peter's name would would be based on what he was to become in the future as a rock-solid follower of Jesus Christ. And although the journey would be arduous, with Peter revealing himself to be as unstable like water, emblematic of his natural temperament to be fiery, impetuous, and rash, like when he suddenly dives off the boat in the presence of Christ, or he tells Christ he'll die for him, but then he denies him three times, or he cuts off poor Malchus's ear, yet his future self would be much different. He would be that solid rock. Thus, his new name is Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock or stone. Aramaic being the common language spoken. And and Greek for Cephas, of course, is Peter. That's where we get Peter. But it was our Lord who knew who Peter would become one day. That he would stand tall before the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost, preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, the first and one of the finest sermons of the New Testament church. 
in which 3,000 souls were converted. He's also recorded preaching through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts during the foundational years of the church, preaching the very truth the early church was founded on. A first observation we can make concerning the name change to rock or stone for Simon, son of John, is that it helps us, it helps us explain an important interaction between Jesus Christ and Peter in Matthew 16. When Jesus tells Peter in verse 18 of chapter 16, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. Now, misunderstanding this verse has led to some of the most vile heresies that place Peter in the place of Jesus Christ. With Peter as the foundation of the church, we know this error to be propagated by the Roman Catholic Church. And their false religion of Peter worship, or you could call Pope worship, is a dangerous error, denying Peter's own words. For it was Peter who said, Peter himself, he said, we are all as believers, as living stones. He's saying we as believers may all be called Peter's or stones who are being built up as a spiritual house of God. But instead, the RCC makes that one stone of the many stones who is Peter into the head overall, usurping Christ. Is that what Jesus was saying when he's talking to Peter in Matthew 16? A thousand times no. It is not Peter who's the rock upon which Christ will build his church, but rather upon Peter's confession in verse 16. When Peter rightly confesses, as to the true identity of Christ, when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In total, Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you are a rock, a stone, but upon an even greater rock, the rock of your confession, upon this rock, I will build my church. The only rock the church is built upon is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2 explains, When it explains the house of God, it reads, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The point being made in all these verses is a magnification of the authority and glory of Christ, not the magnification of the authority and glory of Peter. Peter's time would come. It would come to be that strong servant for Christ. But for now, all he gets is a new name a new name that he will eventually live up to. One final observation concerning new names that are given to men by God is this has always been God's prerogative. For example, Abram changed to Abraham. Sarai changed to Sarah. Jacob changed to Israel and Saul changed to Paul. But the name changing doesn't end here. There are millions and millions more name changes to come for believers. For us, Revelation 2 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So the hidden manna refers to God's sustenance, his care for us. The white stone is the victory stone given to us as victors, as conquerors. 
with a new name given which is on that stone. This verse is indicating that Yahweh will sustain us, we will be victorious, and we will all be changed. This new name giving us access to glory. A name that is likely the same name that was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. An eternal, specific, perfect name. Unique to ourselves. So when we think of Peter, who had placed before him a new name by Yahweh, a name for the changed Peter that he would become, we think of all true believers in Christ have placed before us a new name. A name to match our glorified change that we will one day become. Each with a new name, no one knows, but he who receives it from God Himself. A name that will mark our entry into glory when we rise in glory at the judgment. And there's so much that stands out in this section as a takeaway, but we can't miss the vital question, what do you seek? Followed by the vital answer, we have found the Messiah. Followed by the vital change represented with a new name given. We seek the Messiah, we find the Messiah, we've been given a new name. It takes a mature Christian to see in that order the total inability of man to do any of those things. We don't seek for God, for none seeks for God. It was Yahweh, the good shepherd, who seeks for His sheep. We don't find the Messiah. It was Yahweh, the good shepherd, who finds His sheep. And we don't give ourselves a new name. Yahweh, the good shepherd, gives us our new name. A name only we will know when He calls us to Himself by that name. So the question is, is He calling you to new life? Seeking you that you may be found by the Messiah and one day receive your new name. If He is, do not harden your hearts as in the evil day. For even today, Jesus Christ says to you, come and you will see with the eyes of your heart finally being opened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. It is a privilege to consider these mighty words of Scripture, Lord. And we are so thankful that You have sought us. We are so thankful You have found us, even when we were in our sin. And we thank You that one day You will give us a new name. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that You help us follow You with renewed purpose. And that the Lord would continue to open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we would increase in our understanding to know you better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.